LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com I'm your host Greg Moffat and today we present part two of our interview with David J. Moore discussing his book Evolutionary Metaphors, UFOs, New Existentialism and the Future Paradigm. The interview resumes as David recommends some of what he considers to be the best books dealing with UFO phenomenon. We kind of moved away there from considering the actual nature of the UFO phenomenon, what it might be in, in, in terms that we might call scientific, I suppose, trying to get a handle mm. on it, whether it's mind or matter. But before we leave that, you've mentioned a few books, various UFO researchers. You've mentioned John Mack, uh, Valet, for example, and uh, you've mentioned Colin Wilson's book. Is there any others that you want to add to that? Do you want to maybe give us a handful of books that you think listeners might like to really check out, especially if they're looking for something a little bit different other than the usual off-the-shelf mainline UFO book that they might find if they went into uh, Borders or... Does Borders still exist? Um, you know, W.H. Smith. <laughs> I'm showing my age and I know Borders is gone. They're, they're mainline bookshop. Yes, definitely. I think one of the best books I read after I'd finished my own book, and, and I was quite annoyed by this because I, I, would, I would love to have sort of investigated and quoted Keith Thompson, of, who wrote a book called Angels and Aliens in 1991. And I think that's one of the best books on UFOs I've read because it covers social, sociological elements to psychological, uh, spiritual, even even the conspiracy movements such as the disclosure projects and so on. And it sort of analyzes the full, the full spectrum, really, of ufology, from quite a um almost with a with a literary critic sort of perspective of it but he's a he's very accepting of the phenomena and he's very sophisticated in his approach to it and he uses jungian psychology to um he analyzes bud hopkins sort of hyp- hypnotic regression uh, to uh, to later even indian philosophy towards the end and i think angels and aliens by keith thompson's one of the best UFO books I've read, uh, which was released in 91. And I think in some ways it, it sort of it was a bit ahead of its time, really. And the subtitle of it is UFOs and the Mythic Imagination. So I think it's really important. And, and a more recent one, um, which isn't really a direct book on ufology, but towards the end uh, explores um, Willy Strieber. It's called The Blind Owl by uh, Jason Reza Georgiani, which is a study of an, um, a Persian novel called The Blind Owl. And that's a very strange book, almost kind of a, a Kafka novel with many layers from you know, Buddhist influence, Zoroastrianism, Zoroastrianism, uh, Tantrism, 
And then towards the end, he has a chapter, Star Blood, which starts to look at similarities between this sort of um, dreamlike novel and, and the kind of um, goddess sort of uh, figures that occur through um, religions and, and the kind of terror and the predatory aspect of this, this experience that Strieber explores quite well and in depth. And speaking of Strieber as well, I think one of the best books on the, the whole Strieber phenomena is his report on communion by Ed Conroy, which again looks at the um, literary history of that book uh, in 1986, which is the first alien abduction book that sort of got onto the, well, it did get onto the uh, New York Times bestseller list. And I think as a phenomenon in itself, it's one of the most insightful because obviously Strieber came under heavy attack from critics, which is Philip Class and um, and even fell out with a lot of the UFO community over over his book and and all the time uh, Ed Conroy interviews people throughout it and um, Strieber included and tries to verify whether this um, that if communion was in fact a true story and it's a satisfying book because you, you see the many facets of the, uh, the the controversy and and how Strieber was as an individual. And then how his critics were, and even their, you know, sort of shortcomings in their interpretations, even Strieber's shortcomings. Uh, I think it's one of the most balanced books on ufology I've read, and strangely sort of neglected. I don't think it's been reissued since the 80s, and it's available in paperback. And the fourth book, I believe, is a very good one, which, again, I, I, I read after I'd finished my own book, but I would highly recommend um, Bernard, Bernardo Kastrup's Meaning and Absurdity. Uh, the subtitle is What Bizarre Phenomena Can Tell Us About the Nature of Reality, which I think is is really close to the way I was approaching the, the whole phenomena while I was writing my own book. And again, he talks about logic, uh, metalogic, and the sort of the way stories unfold on a deeper level of reality and then become parts of a, a more consensual material reality and that kind of interplay between mind and matter starts to break down because of course uh, Bernardo Kastrup is a, a, a sort of idealist and panpsychist I think and um, he he has a very complex way of dealing and tackling in in, in very accessible way that the, the meta logic of ufology and of course I think the main influence on my own book was Colin's Alien Dawn, which I've mentioned, which brings together a, a very general overview of ufology. But towards the end, particularly in the last chapter, he speculates and he allows himself to speculate with sort of cutting edge psychology, holographic universe models, um, Stanislav Graf's sort of holotropic breathing, and then again into science fiction, which is one of the most important parts for me because I always felt um, Wilson did a very interesting analysis, very brief analysis of uh, Ian Watson's novel on the UFO phenomena which is uh, The Miracle Visitors which in some ways I think absorbs the whole of ufology uh, because Watson obviously researched the phenomena in depth and then attempted to sort of weave an, a story around it a narrative which could absorb all of its uh, multi-dimensional elements and then in some ways i think it did the most advanced job of representing the ufo phenomena with being 
uniquely agnostic at the same time without being a um, dogmatic and avoiding a lot of the pitfalls of of writing books on UFOs, which is it's a it's quite a difficult thing to do because uh, of course there's so many more ways of interpreting it. And I think in some ways uh, Colin was the one, maybe not the first, but one of the the most significant writers that really drew upon science fiction as a as a valuable tool for understanding uh, anomalous phenomena. So that, I think that's, and I'll add a couple of others and uh, shortly that I was looking at is um, Earth Mysteries, UFOs um, and Ufology. And that's Paul Devereux, Earth Lights Towards an Understanding of the UFO Phenomena and Alien Energy by Andrew Collins, which looks at it as a sort of geomagnetic um, phenomena. And I think there's a lot there's a lot of value to that too, because um, with the geomagnetic interpretation, there's an acceptance that um, geomagnetism can affect the psyche and that within fault lines or round fault lines, psychic activity can be ac- activated or diminished. And these, um, uh, what results from these stressful uh, tectonic zones is um, plasma, plasmatic, you know, sort of plasma can emerge from there. And that has a sort of uniquely um, psychoactive property which can affect uh, the brain which is one of the areas of ufology I didn't know much about. And the more I looked into it, the, the more interesting it became because, of course, it's very closely related to the work of Wilhelm Reich and orgone energy. And, and suddenly his uh, door starts to open into a sort of landscape mysteries interpretation, which is quite a valuable addition, uh, but not often talked about really anymore. A couple of thoughts there. I mean, cosmic rays are bombarding the Earth constantly, and those, uh, they come down from space, they pass right through everything on Earth, including our own bodies and brains, and they carry on, they penetrate into the centre of the Earth, and they can affect, they do affect our consciousness and changes in those, yeah. um, the nature and the intensity, uh, have no doubt affected the course of human evolution over time. And as far as geomagnetics perhaps not geomagnetic it's kind of it's atmos- electrical atmospheric but having witnessed the northern lights at first hand without expecting to see them you know i didn't go on a trip to see the northern lights they just appeared anybody hundreds of thousands of years ago humans witnessing that and not knowing what it was may have talked about that and have passed it down as something very similar to the way that we would talk about all sorts of um, paranormal and supernatural phenomena, possibly even mm. UFOs, something completely beyond their understanding, but just having mm. this magical, this amazing transcendent quality. It's not just some coloured lights in the sky, there's something else about it. So I can see how those different approaches would have value uh, in terms of uh, investigating this. As we move forward here in considering what these phenomena, UFO phenomena, are driving us towards and, you know, are they having an effect on human evolution or a wider evolution of life? We've spoken several times now about how they're basically hinting at the existence of a much wider reality. Mm. And to quote Jacques Vallée, as you do in your book, they implant deep within society far-reaching doubts concerning its basic philosophical tenets. And to continue the phenomenon, quote, it would have to project an image just beyond the belief structure of the target society. And that's what appears to have been happening. And that's why these phenomena 
are developing and changing over time, just as we do. And in fact, this hinting at a much wider reality and uh, undermining basic philosophical tenets. I think Colin Wilson referred to it quite simply as deconditioning. Deconditioning, yeah. And deliberate unbelievableness, I think, is the other one he used to talk about it. That is like, it's, it's, it's just outside of 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 inter it's just outside of consensual reality and it constantly frustrates uh, our paradigm and it, it seems to be a teasing phenomena a suction that I think that um, Ian Watson calls it a teasing uh, or a suction or sort of a, an eschatolo- eschatological magnet that pulls history and 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 the the present into a model into a shape and I've always liked this um, idea that. Um, that the soul captured in a Stanislav Grof's holotropism, which means, I think, roughly growing towards wholeness. So obviously, then you you can consider the UFO as a symbol, just outside of what we can understand or what we can explicate. Constantly frustrating and churning the boundaries up, and it becomes a symbol of 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 the limit of the paradigm. Just generally speaking, I mean, it's the the alien or the the UFO is symbolic of of the other. It's just on this most fundamental basis. And I think one of the most interesting things about the UFO phenomena is that, as you mentioned, it opens up so many other areas of inquiry, and uh, obviously ties up with experience itself. So. And that is like um, with the many explorations of UFOs, is this constant message of transformation involved, or a sort of it's a constant warning, if whether it's ecological or psychological, or around about our paradigm in general, in a materialistic accept uh, what we accept with them, what we accept as as the the, the central paradigm that is materialism, and it sort of frustrates that. Yeah, there's a point in your book. I don't know if these are your actual words or whether you're quoting them or whether I'm just paraphrasing what I read, but the UFO phenomenon being as a sort of a symptom of increasing flux. Yeah. That, that means back and forth between states, between realms, boundaries that we talked about earlier becoming more blurred and fluid. Mm. Is that being driven by quote unquote them? Or us, you know, we're experiencing increasing flux. I mean, you can see that in every dimension of life now, ecologically, economically, politically, we feel that people feel that we see it's like things are moving a lot more and uh, they're much less predictable and it seems to be much more randomness and th- things are just harder to control going forward. We increasingly finding things harder to, uh, to pin down and mm. But that also seems to be happening at, you know, at the psychic level and in, in, in the basic fundamentals of reality. For those of us that are paying attention and interested, that seems to be happening. So it's just wondering where that's coming from. Is that something that we're experiencing? So the UFO phenomenon or some kind of manifestation of that? We've discussed that idea. Or is that flux and that change being driven by, as I said earlier, quote unquote, them? And this, but this is something that we're being pushed through and encouraged to do. The the main problem is when things turn inside out, as as the time as we're living in now, everything seems inside out. Truth is fiction. Um, everything is sort of um, in a state of post truth. And I was always thought and quite struck by Stan Gooch, 
talked about in Total Man, where he talked about the brain as a sort of um, building, where at each time there was a step in evolution, there was a new development in the brain, and it builds vertically. So now you have um, the neo-mammalian brain on top. And when you, we start to look at the brain, and we start to look at culture, and then we start to look at folklore, Gooch looked at um, folklore, and he correlated certain folklore such as um, living in hills, in caves, hairiness, such as hairlessness and virtues, which is fairies and, and gnomes and, and, and all the other sort of varieties. And then he started to look at the, the corresponding parts of the brain, which correspond to heat, to claustrophobia, uh, to buriedness, being buried. And, and then as the, as he goes up through the brain, uh, the folklore starts to change in accordance with the development, evolutionary development of the brain. And until you get to the top sort of part of the head. And he calls this sort of the folklore of the ego, which is the UFO really. It's, it's technological. It's very strangely disembodied, where the heads obviously of the aliens are usually enlarged, strangely proportionally with a very thin neck, as if their intelligence is completely divorced from their body. Uh, the more you start to look at society, I think, you can start to see there's this increasing sense of disembodiedness in people. And especially with technology sort of disembodying us as well. And they were constantly in our heads and that we, we seem to neglect the body so in many ways and we get into a sort of identity crisis. And I think there's none better book that really sort of captured this. It was Neuromancer by William Gibson where the character is constantly lost in cyberspace and he neglects his body. He's quite, I think he's a drug addict. And he's basically addicted to disembodiment. I think in some ways this kind of points to the UFO as a, as a symbol of, of flux and disembodiment. And it can shade some of the interpretations of it. That is, it can be a very abstract phenomenon. As if you look a lot of UFO cases, Especially the clinic, more the clinical interpretations of the UFO cases where there's a, a cold procedure, uh, genetic modification, um, in metal rooms with emotionless beings, apparently emotionless beings, which seem oddly pasty and, and, uh, insectoid. Uh, this, this is what Gooch, um, sort of discussed as a, as a, as a sort of folklore of the, the higher part of the, the brain that, the, the, the part which is starting to develop away from the primordial instincts and abstractify reality and starts to symbolize and detach. It starts to treat knowledge as separate from being as well, which is very significant, I think, because with any knowledge, obviously, you have to, to fully know something. You have to almost embody it. So it becomes a body of knowledge rather than abstract conception. And the UFO phenomena with its tensions and stresses sometimes brushes us away from disembodiment it goes into the sort of spiritual realms of disembodiment and metaphysics at the same time it's very jarring as well with the genetic and manipulation and i whether this is a play out of like sociological interpretations of the phenomena or is an actual metaphor for the genetic um, process of evolution itself playing out in corresponding to the um tears in the brain, the, the tears of the mind so with the, the certain flaws of 
levels of um, development that we go through and then that we're at the cutting edge of the now uh, with the, the world going into a sort of hysteria of division and disembodiment of, of knowledge as well. It's so abstract and it, it doesn't seem to relate to anything. And I think there was a world of time when things were more literal. So, so where bread, you paid for some bread, for example, and the bread was pretty much its own value. It was in it of itself. And then, of course, now value is such an abstract concept. And that value as well extends to philosophy and postmodernism, where we start to treat everything with the same sort of this very similar to like a fiat currency with ideas and what that starts to do is is divorce man away from his existential position in many ways because he doesn't know how to begin with himself so obviously all these kind of symbols of the ufo these kind of spiritual transformational symbols especially the shamanic symbols and the, the shamanic process of, of that you can see in a lot of of UFO literature seems to be sort of a forceful doorway opening to people and, and then it's sort of absorbed and retold by either shamans or authors or people who di are trying to um, articulate a, a doorway sort of outside of consensual reality into a more holistic one, a more, more holistic model. But at the same time, it's a very disorientating thing to look into because obviously it has this sort of mercurialness that it's very hard to pin down. But I think what's really crucial to trying to interpret the phenomena is to, to provide it with an evolutionary model that can absorb its complexity in the most productive way and most effective way that it becomes a, a form of strengthening of the imagination where we can learn to accept uh, a deeper level of reality without um, getting lost in a sort of labyrinth. And I think that's one of the things about the UFO phenomenon is that it, it's so symbolic. And, and the more you look into it, the more you want to um, give it a context. And I think one of the more sort of magical traditions that we look in, I look into in evolutionary metaphors is chaos magic. And I, I noticed that it's um, uniquely different from older magic, such as ritual. Uh, ritual magic and the belief in actual disincarnate entities, whereas uh, the chaos magic sort of treats it all as um, a matter of a psychological chaos as a, that has a relationship to reality and can be utilized. But at the same time, it, it tends to reject metaphysical um, interpretations. It doesn't necessarily have an evolutionary model to it. So chaos magic is very good because it looks at it phenomenologically and accepts that the brain and, and the human mind in general has this kind of flexibility to reality, but it doesn't have an overarching uh, metaphysic, which someone would say that was part of its freedom, but it's also the part of the hazard of it in some ways because it doesn't grow to something. It grows to the individual will of the practitioner, which is a unique freedom, which is what makes chaos magic a sort of punk magic, which enables it to be free. At the same time, I think it... As we go into the postmodern age and, and the combination of, of chaos magic tied to politics and so on, which Gary Lachman sort of talks about in uh, his book Dark Star of Rising, you start to see that, that it, it becomes a sort of dangerous accessory that is utilized for political ends, personal ends and so on, which I think what is, is what chaos magic sort of, it's its shadow in a way.
the, the shadow of chaos magic and the shadow of postmodernism really is this modern world that we're living now. There's no question that the need for some sort of evolutionary leap is very pressing. We certainly have, it does seem we've been quite poor stewards of the planet in recent um, centuries, who put it like that. In fact, you mentioned Gary Lockman when you're talking about Dark Star Rising. Um, I did an interview with him based around his book, Caretakers of the Cosmos, when he suggests actually that we're extremely important and, mm. uh, you know, in, 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 evolutionary terms and that we some sort of bootstrapping needs to go on particularly at this point and i think the quote in your book is that we are deeply involved um in the universe and yet as you hinted at in your comments a few moments ago and i think this might actually be another quote from your book uh, the cultural zeitgeist tends to diminish the metaphysical so we've been talking about how many many people are waking up to a wider reality, but still the cultural zeitgeist, whether it's the media or you know, popular culture in general, tends to be some way behind that and really acts as a drag. There's no question about that. I've always kind of tried to keep one eye on modern science fiction because you get a sense of where things are going, what kind of things are being accepted. And obviously when, when I was studying literature at school, um, at college, and uh, university. I was always interested in H.G. Wells and so on, because they seem to treat ideas in a very open manner. And then the, the more recent science fiction I read seemed to have a more political, overtly political dimension to it. And it seemed to sort of sneer at metaphysics. But I think there was one exception to this, and that recently, uh, that was um, The Thing Itself by Adam Roberts, which I quote in the book uh, a few times which sort of looks at um, the Kantian m- the Kantian metaphysics behind um, behind anomalous phenomena and, and the categorical thinking that sort of shields us from the meaning of the universe. And I think there's a really good quote in that book, which is about when we look out at the universe, we see the architectures of our uh, our own perceptual limitations and. And he, he quotes further on, I think, um, with a, one of the protagonists in, in there says, when we look out and we see a godless cosmos, what we're really, really seeing is, is those limits of our own perception. But to take away certain categories, such as space, time, and, and, and of all the other limitations of human consciousness that we have in our ordinary state, and then to look at the universe as a, as a thing in itself, as a, as a, a vast process, and then to sort of reject meaning from it seems to be seems to be sort of selling selling ourselves and the universe short for the sake of a sort of housekeeping or a, a sort of obsessive compulsive disorder that wants to remove fuzziness and and mystery and the vast infinity of things. And I think with the re- recent work of Ian McGilchrist, for example, the master in the and his emissary, he looks at the left and the right hemispheres of the brain and you start to see that the way people look at the universe and the the, the common perception of the universe is very left-brained in in the way that it wants to itemize and bitify reality sort of like um i think terence mckenney used to say that it was like uh, as you get older you start to tile reality so if you looked at a lawn as a child it's infinitely complex and rich and as a play of light and then as you get older, you sort of get a tile and white gla- grass on it. 
and then you stick it on the grass and when you look you, you only see a, a basically a crude symbol of what you see and i think that's the kind of left brain's way of looking at things is it's a reducing mechanism which is very good for survival and making existence practical but at the same time that say let's say the right-brained view of reality takes the larger context and mystery and it sort of almost celebrates the mercurial the symbolic the metaphorical the analogical rather than the analytical and i think as as the human brain is at the forefront of of existence it is the it is the the process that it is becoming in the world starts to reflect out in the culture because if if the culture is increasingly left-brained then that's a product of the increasing use of the left brain as a sort of barometer of meaning and a barometer of existence out there i think with science fiction you do get this kind of tension and i think adam roberts did a really good job of that and and, and you get a sort of uh, you sort of put your finger in the air and you get a um, a reading of the the cultural ambience and the cultural obsessions in terms of the ultimate message of all of this there's still a lot for us to learn uh, about potential for underlying purpose what the underlying nature of things is the ufo phenomenon is certainly as we've discussed pointing us in a particular direction uh it's kind of I would say now screaming <laughs> at the top of its lungs about, you know, that time, space and matter, the fundamental nature of reality is not what you think it is. It's deeper, it's wider, it's bigger. So the question is, we're being led somewhere. Then is there an omega point in all of this? You know, is there somewhere that we've come from that we're being led back to? Is there anything in terms of grand metaphysical or existential possibilities are you beginning to glean anything? What was your instinct tell you? What possibilities in this interest you? I mean, it, are, are you, do you, is it still a very much an open book as far as you're concerned? The answers to the bigger questions in all of this when we get beyond simply talking about UFOs and lights in the sky. Yeah, I, I personally took a sort of soft approach to ufology. There's two approaches to ufology, I think uh, Ed Conroy points out. Um, there's hard ufology and there's soft ufology. Hard ufology is basically uh, the nuts and bolts approach, really. And then the soft ufology sort of blends into psychology, literary criticism, um, sociology, and and even spirituality. So I, I'm kind of happy to sort of sit between the two. And I, I kind of am interested in the sort of philosophical implications of anomalous phenomena in general. But in terms of larger paradigms, I think the closest I got to, which has really sort of had my hair stand up on my arms when I read the epilogue to Richard Tarnas's, um Passion of the Western Mind, and then followed on from there to Cosmos and the Psyche. And I really felt that Tarnas had gone an extraordinary distance with, I mean, it, it's uh, speculative, but it's very convincing where he sort of sees the postmodern world is a sort of birth pang of a, or a breakdown in in a sort of consciousness which has gone too far which is abstraction to the point of being divorced from reality completely and divorced from the body primarily as well which i think philosophy ought to be embodied um in the sense that you have 
what Jacob Needleman called concepts and ideas. A concept is a sort of, of, of basically just a temporary framework that you throw out there as a sort of hypothesis, whereas a, an idea is something quite profound that you, you take on board the new idea and it unfolds in you and it seems to be very rich. Like, um, And I think emotional... Uh, as well as emotional and subjective experiences often neglected in talk, uh, philosophical talk as a sort of, um, it's merely subjective, so to speak. But such ideas that Jacob Needleman points out towards as such ideas as God, uh, that they can lead to revelations such as experiences of an idea. And they, they seem to be infinitely rich. And often they're subjective experiences, they're deeply subjective experiences. Uh, yet they infer an objective reality underneath them. And obviously this very controversial um, idea. And I think increasingly we are seeing in the, the world today is people like Jordan Peterson are somewhere between the political debates that are going on. And at the same time, he has a, a book of his, uh, called Maps of Meaning. And in that, he discusses the origins of meaning and he defends to quite an extraordinary degree the subjective reality. And nevertheless, I think the, the bridge is being made in a really peculiar way where people now seem to be having an existential crisis in the world and they're turning to people like Jordan Peterson who writes 12 Rules for Life and provides them with a sort of existential framework of improving themselves. And simultaneously underlying it is, is a sort of acknowledgement of, of the value of metaphysics. And then um, what, what seems to be happening is there's a schism going on where the, there's the materialist atheists who aren't seemingly as vocal as they used to be, perhaps with the exception of Sam Harris. But even then, Sam Harris is sort of uh, taking on on meditation. And, and, and I think he's relevant majorly relevant in the ongoing debate between meaning and atheism and materialism. And then there was that really curious argument or <laughs> argument or slash debate with Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson where they seemed to be really divided. And I thought it was really symbolic of, of a, a divide that was going on. And a, a simultaneously a bridge, I think, as well, because obviously millions of people are very receptive to him at the moment. And what... Leading back to Tarnas here, I thought this was one of the most unique things I saw, was um, an interview with Tarnas about Jordan Peterson, and sort of, he placed him in an astrological position, and started to look at him as a sort of Saturnian individual, a structure of time and, and order, and obviously chaos and order is one of Jordan Peterson, Peterson's major concerns, the major passions is to sort of bring order out of chaos and so on. And Tarnas, to me, seems to have gone a, a very long distance with his thinking in terms of introducing archetypal astrology into the equation, which in itself is a psychological way of viewing things through the lens of astrology. So he would talk about, say, the Saturnian elements of Peterson and then the, the sort of... Um, 
you know, the, the, the mercurial and then the, 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 the transits and, and also it's very technical. But not, nevertheless, um, in Passion of the Western Mind, he draws upon the unification of the basic schism of mind and matter and so on and that kind of continuing divorce. But the, the main bridgeway between mind and matter is really in synchronicity and even in the sort of synchronistic relationships between the planets. And he starts to draw a sort of um, vision that births out of a trauma, really. He calls it a double-bind situation where um, the present situation is a sort of schizophrenic state where we, we're in a hostile universe. At least that's why we paint the universe. We see it as a essentially indifferent uh, let's say not let's say like hostile is a very subjective word, but let's say it, it's fundamentally anti anti life on the large scale. Let's say that it it's um, drawing down to a thermodynamic death, heat death of the universe, and so on. So, meaning compared to the ultimately large, seems to diminish in proportion. And yet we exist as if we're meaningful. So there's this schizophrenic bind where we exist in a context which re- ultimately rejects us. And this causes a, a great psychic disease on, on Earth and on planet and our planet and our sense of being in the cosmos. And I think with Tarnas's sort of, I, I, I think he calls it archetypal astrology. He makes a massive, um, bridgeway into a possible paradigm or a possible situation where meaning is infused completely in, into the very movements of culture and the very, movements of individuals and especially very popular individuals and popular movements such as trends in films trends in discussion and the re- the the sort of bubbling up of concerns with meaning that you see in the the more modern phenomena with um peterson and you start to get a sense that we live in a time which is very much of a repeat of the 1960s and the sort of civil rights movements and the obsession with sort of freedom and identity and it, it's it's like a replay in some ways and then what you get is a sort of playoff of existential lostness and people searching for themselves and then there's dietary fads and and obsessive b- body orientation which is looking for meaning out of the body there's this constant churning up again i think you get a sense that things are being churned up and for what for you you, you think about uh, what for you it's you just have to watch the debate unfold and the way it seems to be unfolding tends to point towards an odd an odd turning away from materialism in a strange paradoxical sort of way although it might seem almost the worst it's ever been but i think that the debate's definitely evolving in a sh- a strange way and i think with podcasts and the internet and people having the equivalent of a a fire in the center of the room where they can listen to stories and and people discussing ideas and so on again in a in a very free way that was in it's not so controlled as it used it used to be at least in terms of what people can expose themselves to and I think, Jen, I just get the sense that people are turning away from materialism because it, it doesn't supply them with a cosmology which is evolutionary. And it's very important, I think, to the health of digestion as, as a form of sort of existence to digest meaning. 
you have to have a framework which is large enough to involve the individual in a larger process. And that's not to say like you have a cosmology which is fraudulent and you live in an illusion. I think the cosmology that we're searching for in the modern age has to be robust enough to carry the weight of the evolutionary drive of man into the future. And how that will come about, it's difficult to tell. Nevertheless, I think people are sketching, sketching out ways. And I think definitely the epilogue to the passion of the Western mind really shook me in terms of um, colliding all these ideas together and giving a vision of a, a world which works on synchronicity and a sense of life force and an unconscious process underneath ordinary consensual reality which bursts forth into strange symbolic cultural movements as well as individual transformations and whether the UFO in itself will return in a guise, a different guise, whether as the same sort of phenomena or a different for, a different phenomena. I think at the very best we can say that we can accept these anomalous experiences as metaphors that exist in some objective sense yet play out in our imaginary imaginary culture in our collective mind and in in some ways they write the script in a sort of by by infusing culture with meaning and mystery again and i think what it's done is churned up in a very subliminal way our faith in in a very material world and we, we don't know how that's played out on a on a long scale so and what kind of things that will do to the cultural imagination as it sort of shifts and turns away towards to a new sort of goal or new a new symbol and i think that new symbol we don't know what that new symbol will be and i think nevertheless the the ufo and the anomalous phenomena has always seemed that kind of liminal symbol that you can turn towards to complexify your your power your paradigm and your philosophical understandings of things because it's the area which is not addressed. It's it's um what what Jung called enantiodromia, which is the thing that turns itself inside out. And I think that's the limit of where we can see is when when we see or look at something, we see the opposite of what we what we are and we learn through that sort of tangled process. And that tangled process is evolution in its own way. David, just a closing thought from me. If there's a, a meta view or a sense of the ground of existence that I feel makes sense to me, the idea is that there is a ground of being that is something actually beyond the observable universe, that there's something beneath, beyond, behind that, and that the universe is perhaps a manifestation of that. So you can call the force God, for example, that many people have done so over hundreds of thousands of years, and that the universe and that physical manifestations we know it is designed uh, in order for that force, that being, that intelligence to have the, a type of experience that you and I would understand. Yeah. And everything that we can see that exists is therefore necessarily part of that. It's like, imagine if the universe is a brain then you and I are individual cells within yeah. us. And it's often been said, you know, we're the universe becoming aware of itself. And I always instinctively felt 
that statement ha- held some kind of truth. Yeah. And I also like the idea of transcendent evolution within this universe, almost like, as I said earlier, that, that, that sort of the Big Bang or the biblical let there be light was something non-physical becoming physical. It was disintegrating. And yeah. we're part of a process of reintegration towards wholeness. And that at some point, the material will again become non-material. And the whole process, and people have speculated about this actually, about whether, you know, there's uh, repeated big bangs, the universe comes into being and contracts and repeats. To me, it's like breathing. Yeah, you definitely. Know, you breathe it's in, very good- you breathe in, uh, contraction, you breathe out, big bang. In, in a nutshell, what, what's intimated in, in all of these anomalous phenomena phenomena is that um there's a there's a grand of life force and it sort of plays out in the material world and through doing so it it frustrates it, it there's a tension there and and existence is a, a is a is an attempt to integrate this complexity and then eventually through this act which is a, a force um of an act there's a process of learning or self-understanding and, and individuation is a is a really important part of it i think is on an individual level that as you exist you have to then understand where what drives you what's your fundamental drive and what creative force can you bring out of yourself in the most integrated and, and precise way possible which gives your life meaning basically and i think the the question of human existence is a problem because it's not because you can't know it. It's because you're in it. it you, you're sort of immersed in the meaning so much that it's very difficult to turn and identify. It's a bit like a dog chasing its own tail. And I think only in heightened modes of consciousness that you can really grasp the whole of things. And the only the problem is that we tend to think and experience in time. And it's only outside of time or in brief flashes of peak experience or in, in synchronistic moments when, when suddenly we, we start to see that we're running parallel with a, with a deeper level of reality or the ground of, of, of being or, or becoming in a way. And it's the ground of becoming because I think the process of being is a process of continual growth and to throw a spanner into the works to, to prevent growth is pretty much the the destructive force and i think if there's any way that we can go forward with integrating anomalous phenomena in a in a philosophical philosophically robust and healthy way is to to turn the experience into a as a symbol of evolution basically to propel it into uh towards its greatest expression which i think that's what it intimates and its greatest expression is really what i've called an evolutionary metaphor which is not merely a metaphor, but as a as a, a symbol to grow towards, or a holotropism means to to grow towards wholeness, or to grow towards a better integration, a, a more con- a convergence of worlds. And I think one of the this one of the chapters is called convergence of worlds, which is this you want to see the convergence of this deep ground of being and reality as we experience it in such a way that the moments that we live in our life seem rich with meaning and growth and that we seem to actualize this process of this potential which exists at the very ground of existence well if any um ufo fanatics have made it with us this far 
to the end of all this and they're feeling a bit frustrated that we haven't been talking about um, Star Trek and a Little Green Men and Independence Day and Disclosure. Rejoice! Because your beloved <laughs> phenomena are part, it seems, this is a picture that we feel is emerging, part of something much, much bigger. David, today we've been discussing your book, Evolutionary Metaphors, UFOs, New Existentialism and the Future Paradigm. That's widely available everywhere, all the usual outlets. Before we sign off for today, uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with people about maybe something you're working on, website, whatever? Um, I keep a blog at uh, Ritual in the Dark on wordpress.com, which I'll add my chapters from my new book, which I'll be working on probably next year now, which is tentatively called um, Becoming to Being Towards an Occult Psychology, which sort of goes off where evolutionary metaphors sort of leaves off because I started to see it as a psychological phenomenon and that's what I'm sort of investigating at the moment. Splendid. Well, David, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you.